Oh, whoa. Hey, calm down, music. All right. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. This is Just Human number 241. I am back. I had to skip on Monday. I had to skip the Monday show. Um, I was not feeling well that day and feeling much better now, although still kind of groggy, but that may be a little bit of the weather. We have really proper uh, hoodie, hoodie weather here in Virginia. It's perfect. I love this kind of weather, but it's also making me want to sleep in. Um, <laughs> but I'm awake. I have extra coffee. I've already had a little bit of coffee this morning and I don't feel like it did anything yet. So I brewed more. Um, I might be over caffeinated by the time we get to the end of the show today. Uh, what I have lined up is uh, some stuff on McGonagall. There's some some stuff happening related to McGonagall. And y'all know that's my favorite. He's my favorite uh, indicted FBI agent. And so we're going to talk about him for a little while here at first. And then we're going to go talk a little bit about Corey Bush. And then I think we're going to have time for an investigative report on Andrew Tate and the Tate brothers. And then some J6 bomber investigation news. So I think that's what we have time for. We will see. That's what I have lined up. We'll see how much of it we get to. Um, I do have a hard stop today at about 1140 uh, a.m. So whatever we don't get to, we'll save for the, the Friday morning show. Hope you guys are doing well. It's a good week. Another fantastic week where nothing is happening and the swamp isn't being drained, right? <laughs> if you missed Affected last week or last Sunday, you really missed out. Uh, Buster Lou, I do have those. I do have those lined up. Um, they're in. They're in the mix. I may make a game time decision to 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 grab those and go to that as well. We're talking about them tonight on on Devolution Power Hour. For sure. Um, but yeah, last Sunday's Defected was really good. I'm going to have Green Star make some clips from it. Um, I feel like we were really one of our best episodes. All right. You guys like the show. If you enjoy what I do here, then please visit my links and give me a follow on various social media sites that I'm on. And if you would like to support the show, you can go to ko-fi.com and buy me a cup of coffee. You can go to Benson Honey Farms and get yourself some honey or some goat milk soap. You can go to Bootleg Products, get yourself some seasoning, salsas, rubs, uh, sauces, chili. This is excellent chili weather here in Virginia right now. I'm sure excellent chili weather over there in Greensboro. Uh, good morning, North Carolina suburban mom. I love Greensboro. Go there often. And also Manly Cans. Valentine's Day is coming up. So if you're thinking about uh, a manly man in your life and a gift that he would like, please go to Manly Cans. Use my affiliate link. If you make a purchase, they kick a few dollars my way. That's how it works with all these other ones too. And then there's merch and there's Buy Me Coffee. Speaking of merch, I have my Just Human mug and it needs more coffee in it. So, ah, that's not what I wanted. I wanted this right here. Okay, we're going to talk about McGonagall first. There's been a few things happening with McGonagall lately. Now we've covered, uh, we've been covering McGonagall since the since before he was indicted here on this show, and I you know I've just kind of been dogging that case because I think it's 
I think is extremely important. I think I think the SDNY um, indictment uh, likely spun off of work Durham was doing, though I can't prove that. I just find it to be highly likely. And I think McGonagall is possibly one of the most important indictments to come out of, uh, or that we've seen in the past, I don't know, like 20 years. Like, I, I really do think that McGonagall is, uh, it's yet to be realized just how important those two indictments are and what the consequences of those two indictments are going to be for other swamp creatures and for the, the FBI itself. And I was alerted to a couple things. Um, well, here, let me say this. The status of things in McGonagall is, of course, he pled guilty in both the SDNY and the DC case, got a plea deal. And in the SDNY case, he was sentenced to 50 months in prison, if I remember correctly. And in the and that's already happened. And then in the DC case, um, we're at the sentencing phase where each side has made submissions as to what they would like to see him sentenced to. And the defense, of course, is asking for something very light and saying, look, he's already being punished in this other case. He doesn't need to be punished that severely in this one. Normal stuff. And DOJ is saying, no, give him 30 months, $95,000, which is almost the, or is the max. It's either is the max he could possibly get, or it's close to the max. I can't remember right now. Um, that he hasn't been sentenced yet. His sentencing, I want to say, is February 10th. I could be mistaken, but it's coming up next month is when he's going to be officially sentenced in the D.C. case. While that's been going on, some of the people connected to him have turned up in the news in uh, some ways that we like. So first one, let me just let me just go to his also in his co-defendant in the SDNY case, who we've kind of forgotten about over here. Um, I haven't focused on him very much because there isn't that much about him that we know. And that's Sergei, Sergei Shestikov. That's McGonagall's uh, co-defendant in the SDNY case. Now, he registered under the Foreign Agents Act, uh, Foreign Agents Registration Act, um, for work he performed for Yevgeny Fokin, Lord Barker, and Oleg Deripaska. And Sergei Shestikov was McGonagall's partner in crime up in New York. He's a former Soviet. He's a he was doing work as a translator in um uh, for the DOJ and he was the go between uh for McGonagall and these guys. Oleg and Lord Barker, whose name doesn't come up come up that often, but he's one of the players in Spygate and Yevgeny Fokin. So Shestikov's like the middleman between the mole in the FBI, the traitor in the FBI, and then these Russian swamp creatures and English swamp creatures, who, former UK energy minister, that's who Lord Barker is. Um, Shestikov was indicted in New York along with McGonagall, and he's been rather quiet. We've been focusing on McGonagall, of course, he gets... Headlines, as far as we're concerned, you know, uh, understandably so. But Shestikov's case is ongoing. Shestikov is still indicted. He hasn't pled guilty. He hasn't gotten a plea deal. And over in the SDNY docket, last time we looked over here was back in December when the, um, the sentencing submissions were made and McGonagall was sentenced. 
right? A couple days ago, Sergei Shestikov popped back up on this docket. And it's a letter from his attorney, who is Rita M. Glavin. Fun fact, Rita M. Glavin is Andrew Cuomo's attorney in one of his recent cases. Like, I think in the... Uh, I think in the case that was about the sexual assault stuff that uh, Andrew Cuomo was saying was a, you know, like total, total smear job against him. Um, let me see. I want to see if it is that case. I think it is. Here, let me look. Let me search their names together. Yep, yep. It, she was his attorney for um, when he resigned. Yeah, so anyway, um, I would not be... I wonder if she's still his attorney. Because I'm seeing articles pop up from 2021. I'm not sure if she still is or not. But anyway, you know, one thing to keep in mind, um, Andrew Cuomo's made the news recently because uh, he's saying, you know, that he was basically taken out. Um and there's no truth to the allegations against him. I have no idea if he was or not, but I would totally 100% believe that Democrats would take him out uh, with these allegations in order to prevent him from running for president or something, uh, or to try to. Uh, I could just, I could just totally see that. Like, um, as much as we hate, like as like as popular as it is to hate Andrew Cuomo, I'm not saying anything good about him. I'm just saying that I would not be surprised if that tactic was deployed against him in order to get him out for whatever reason, to take him out of, they didn't want him running a presidential race. They wanted uh Huckle in there more than they wanted to keep him in there. I'm just saying like, we totally believe that none of these allegations are true about him and they just took him out because they, for whatever reason, anyway. So back to Sergey. So I asked the same attorney, um, so this letter appeared in the docket. I represent Sergei Shestakov in the above referenced action. I write to respectfully request a two-week extension to file Mr. Shestakov's pre-trial motions. He is scheduled to go to trial pursuant to the court's May 30th, 2023 order. The current briefing schedule is as follows. Mr. Shestakov's pre-trial motions due February 2nd. The government's responses due February 16th and the reply due February 23rd. We make this request given our profess our pressing professional obligations that were unforeseen when this schedule was ordered. So another reason I bring up Cuomo is that if she is still representing Cuomo, then maybe that's what she's referring to is that she has other professional obligations that were unforeseen at that time. As in she's preparing countersuits or something. This is Mr. Shestikov's first request for an extension of the pretrial motions briefing schedule, and it would not impact any other deadlines in the case. The government consents this request, so the government's not opposing to it. And their time to, re their time to respond is extended to March 8th because of other professional obligations that they have. If the court were to grant Mr. Shestikov's request, the new schedule would be Mr. Shestikov's motions due on February 16th, government's response due March 8th. 
and the replies due March 22nd. I believe Shestikov's trial is scheduled in March, I mean, April or May. Let me see. Think, think he is. There's the schedule. May 10th, any motions to sever due May 10th. Responses due May 24th, pretrial conference May 30th. Oh, so it's going to be in June then, perhaps. That's the schedule right there. We will definitely cover it, 100%, as best we can anyway. Yeah, I think it's in June. Okay. So I bring that up. So he's popped up again. We'll see, we'll see, you know, if, uh. If he ends up with a plea deal or what. But there's some more going on. R.L. Skeeter, thank you. For documents, Subaru, and dogs. Yay, feel better. Thank you very much. I just got the dogs new crates recently. And they are very happy. They outgrew their already big crates that they started out with. They they outgrew them. And I, I bought the biggest sizes they have. Uh, they're huge and they take up way too much space in our house, but the dogs are much happier in their new crates. They're doing really rather well. The dogs are Hercules has regained all of his confidence. And with that, all of his mischievousness has come back in full force. And, uh, he's back to being bigger than his sister again. And his sister is back to being the well-behaved one. Um, and being much more reserved and less crazy. For a while there, their roles were reversed and she was the mischievous one and was causing all the problems and was being bold and assertive all the time. But now that he's back to himself fully, she's, she's, got, she's not quite in his shadow. I think it was overall it was good for her. She's not quite in his shadow. She's her own dog. But he's a... Uh, He's quite mischievous. Okay, so Lynn over here on True Social often sends me or notices me to some really good articles and happenings, and I appreciate it. Um, give her a follow. She's a great follow. Uh, for those, all you guys that are watching the show, you're not you're document nerds, right? So she's a good follow. She posts stuff that relates to a lot of the things we talk about in this show. She found this article related to some of McGonagall's friends over in Europe. So right here, former security minister, Selmo Chikotic, maybe, who was a Bosnian army officer during the war, was charged with failing to prevent the torture and murders of Cro Cro Croat military prisoners in Bugajno in 1993. So this is all translated, you know, but... Uh, 
this guy, uh, the Bosnian state court in Sarajevo said on Thursday that it has confirmed an indictment charging ex-minister Somo Čakotic and Dezav Malako with war crimes against prisoners of war. Okay, This article is from January 18th, 2024. Now let's look at the next one. Another article that's been translated. Uh, Dorian, Dorian Ducca of the McGonagall file spent four hours of testimony at SPAC, which is an investigative unit. Rama's advisor shut up in front of the media. So this is Dorian Ducca, who is in the McGonagall indictment. And Dorian Ducca left the special prosecutor's office after four hours of interrogation. Um, he was recently in the news because of the McGonagall file. Dorian Ducca was famously part of Drumroll, CEFC, Hunter Biden, and and uh, what's his name? His business partners, um, the Patrick Ho and Yijian Ming's energy outfit. Okay, Dorian Ducka shut his mouth uh, when speaking to the media, but the suspicions are that SPAC, which is a special investigative unit, they defined what it was somewhere in this article has opened the McGonagall file, leaving Prime Minister Eddie Rama without sleep. Ducca is his advisor, and the Prime Minister himself has accepted it, as his name appears in the FBI file where $250,000 were paid to Charles McGonagall. Alton Dumani himself had an informal meeting with journalists a few days ago and gave signals that there will be developments regarding this file. Remember, this is translated, okay? Um... As for McGonagall's scandal, that former FBI agent for the counterintelligence sector of the FBI um, until he left the FBI in September 2018, and amongst other things, covered Albania, Bosnia, and Herzegovina. He is accused of accepting $225,000 from former employee of the Secret Services of Albania and having held a series of meetings with businessmen and politicians in Albania, Kosovo, and Bosnia, but without reporting them according to the rules at the FBI. According to the indictment... During a trip to Albania in 2017, on September 9th, the defendant McGonagall met with Eddie Rama and Dorian Ducca and Agron Neza, and he called the Prime Minister to be, to be careful and not to grant a license for oil exploration in Albania to a Russian shell company. This is because he was trying to get it granted to the CEFC, I think. Person A and B had financial interest from the decision of the Albanian government. Defendant McGonagall gave the Prime Minister and the FBI souvenir in the presence of Person B. And Person B was, they said it up here, that was Agroneza. The indictment establishes a direct link between the former FBI officials' meetings with the Albanian Prime Minister and the presence of third parties A and B who were private citizens. It is unclear why the Prime Minister met with a senior FBI official in the presence of these private individuals. Meanwhile, on September 22nd, McGonagall pled guilty to accepting $225,000 from Agron Neja, who, according to court documents, became an informant for the FBI's investigation into his contacts and meetings in Albania. The guilty plea was made in federal court, etc., 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 etc. Mr. McGonagall accepted all the charges related to Albania, including contacts with the Prime Minister, Eddie Rama, and the unofficial advisor, Dorian Ducca. Asked by Judge Collar Cotelli if, on November 25th, he had informed the Justice Department attorney of a possible criminal investigation into a U.S. citizen who had registered to lobby for a party that was not Prime Minister Rama, Mr. McGonagall answered yes. So at sentencing, he confirmed 
that he was feeding information about ongoing criminal investigations and by DOJ to targets of those investigations. McGonagall had received information about this lobbyist from Mr. Ducca. The indictment does not identify the American lobbyist nor the Albanian party, but on November 14, 2017, lobbyist Nick Muzin filed with the Department of Justice, albeit late, the documents on the lobbying activity a few months ago on behalf of DP. I guess that's a party, which was subsequently, subsequently became the subject of an investigation in Albania for the origin of the money. On February 26, 2018, the FBI's New York office opened investigations focused on the American lobbyist at the request and under the direction of Mr. McGonagall. So this guy, Nick Muzin, because of McGonagall's corrupt relationship with Dorian Ducca and Eddie Rama, opened up an investigation into a lobbyist, Nick Muzin. He used his powers within the FBI to open up that investigation which caused that guy to have to register as a foreign lobbyist and then caused an investigation in Albania to be opened into the origin of money that he had and doing the work he was doing on behalf of that party. And then February 26, 2018, the FBI's New York office officially opened the investigation into that lobbyist because McGonagall directed it. So he's using the full power of the FBI to get, give do political favors for the Albanians who are buying him off. During the hearing, Mr. Gump McGonagall admitted that he had established the connections and contacts in Albania through a friend of his, referring to Neza, with the intention of preparing the ground for him to pursue business and profit opportunities in Albania after he left the FBI. They had a joint venture together, McGonagall and this guy. And after McGonagall retired from the FBI, they were going to get into the energy business which is one of the most corrupt businesses in the world. Before I left the FBI in September 2018, I was planning to start a security consulting business with a friend. I knew that my contracts with the government and international relations could be useful to me later when I started that business. He further added, as stated in both the indictment and the guilty plea, that he had not declared the $220,000. He said he had borrowed from his friend and potential business partner, referring to Neza. Mr. McGonagall admitted in the session that the fact that he had met with Prime Minister Eddie Rama several times, starting from September 2017, and with that first meeting September 9th, in the presence of Mr. Ducca, who continues to appear as person B in the document. Asked by the judge if after the trip in September 2017, he had maintained an ongoing relationship with uh, the Minister of Albania and person B, Mr. McGonagall said yes. I said energy. He, he he was doing a security business, but there's also an energy business, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure there was also an energy business he was invested in. Um, or at least was doing work on behalf of. Now, there's more. There's more. Um, so I mentioned this guy. Right? I'm about to tell you where this guy fits in. Let me make sure. Oh, no. Do I have the wrong? Where is it? Hold up, hold up. There it is, there it is. Okay. But wait, there's more. McGonagall case. Agron Neza, who we were just talking about, 
was also interrogated by SPAC for six hours. This article is from Monday, January 22nd. After more than six hours, Agron Neza came out of SPAC, which was the, it's the special anti-corruption unit, special anti-corruption prosecution, where he was interrogated in the special prosecutor's office regarding his mention in the McGonagall case. In a brief statement to journalists, he said that you should ask the prosecutors why he was in there in, in the SPAC. Agronez's name is mentioned in the file of the former FBI official Charles McGonagall, who allegedly received money, blah, blah, blah. According to the file, McGonagall met with Agroneza, a former Albanian agent known as Person B. Good, they corrected this. Originally, they had written this as Person A, which was a mistake. I'm glad they corrected it. McGonagall asked Neza for money, then took trips around Europe. So, that's yet another person. Another person in this corrupt racket that McGonagall was involved in, who was being interrogated over there in Europe. And so I corrected the article here. Obviously, they follow me and notice and realize their mistake, right? <laughs> but if you go here to, this is from the McGonagall indictment. Check it out. Person A is Agroneza. Agroneza was a naturalized U.S. citizen who was born in Albania and who resided in New Jersey. Agroneza had been an employee of an Albanian intelligence agency several decades earlier. Company A is a Delaware business organization registered by Agroneza in January 2018. So that's that security company. Um, person B was an Albanian national. So this one right here is uh, um, Dorian Ducca. Uh, person B was Albanian national. He was employed by a Chinese energy conglomerate. Chinese energy conglomerate equals CEFC. CEFC. Person B operated as an informal advisor to the Prime Minister of Albania, retaining an official Albanian government email account and passport, and was a former Albanian senior government official. Person A and Person B were friends and business associates. Person C was a national of Bosnia and Herzegovina and an advisor to a Bosnian member of the presidency. Person C was a former Bosnian defense minister. So... This is person C. Minister Selmo Chakotic, who also was just indicted. Person D was a national of Bosnia and Herzegovina, was a founder and general manager of a pharmaceutical company based in Bosnia and Herzegovina. That would be the person whose name escapes me right now, although I do know it. I do know it. It's escaping my mind right now. That's the person who... Um, Nikki Haley, they were trying to introduce Nikki Haley to while she was at the uh, UN. Which brings us to the main story. The main reason I'm talking about McGonagall today. I mean, I wanted to catch you guys up on all that stuff because it flies in the face of the nothing is happening crowd. But this article from the Daily Mail, which is in part based on documents we read on this show, uh, it's fun stuff. I like seeing this. 
Charles McGonagall sends top FBI bosses into a frenzy as they're now trawling through 22 years of high-level investigations for fear they were compromised by convicted Bureau spy. Anxious FBI chiefs are trawling through numerous top-level investigations spanning 22 years. The forensic cleanup operation ranges from the entire time the philandering former head of counterintelligence in New York worked for the agency. McGonagall has already been sentenced to four years and two months in prison for taking money and conspiring with sanctioned Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska. But the full possible repercussions of his treachery are outlined in a sentencing memorandum by the U.S. government for another case in Washington, D.C., where he will be sentenced on February 16th. This, that memorandum we read on the show last week. Prosecutors are demanding he gets another 30 months jail time and a $95,000 fine for hiding $225,000 in cash he received from an Albanian intelligence official. And they reveal in the January 5th filing, obtained by the Daily Mail, but also obtained by Just Human and the Just Human document nerds, (laughs) that the FBI is so worried about McGonagall's deceit that sensitive cases dating back to when he became a special agent are being minutely scrutinized. The memorandum says, quote, given the defendant's senior and sensitive role in the organization, the FBI has been forced to undertake substantial reviews of numerous other investigations to ensure that none were compromised during the defendant's tenure as an FBI agent and supervisory special agent. The defendant worked on some of the most sensitive and significant matters handled by the FBI. The filing further warns his lack of credibility as revealed by his conduct underlying his offensive conviction could jeopardize them all. The resulting internal review has been a large undertaking requiring an unnecessary expenditure of substantial government resources. McGonagall joined the FBI in 1996 and started his career working on the investigation into TWA Flight 800. Isn't that fascinating? I don't know how to say your name because it starts with three consonants. Munocera. I'm just going to say that. I don't know. $20. Thank you very much for the rant. I appreciate it. So TWA Flight 800. That would be a plane that was taken out by a terrorist with a with a, a missile, right? That would be that famous plane that was shot down by a terrorist using a Stinger missile, probably one that we gave to the Mujahideen or Al-Qaeda and found its way back to the U.S. And they, they took that plane and they reassembled that entire plane except for a giant hole in the wing where that missile hit. And McGonagall was there. Of course, it's not supposed to be a terrorist attack. It's not supposed... That's not the official story. That's not the official story, but... uh, Let's see. If I'm remembering right, they they took that... They rented out a warehouse and they took that aircraft and they reassembled the entire thing. 
except for like this giant hole in the wing. <laughs> there's a whole there's a whole conspiracy theories. Uh, yeah. Let's see. July 17th, 1996. 16 months later, J Joint Terrorism Task Force announced that no evidence of criminal act was found and closed its active investigation. Four-year NTSB investigation concluded with the approval of aircraft accident report on August 20, 23rd, 2000. Ending the most expensive, complex, and costly air disaster investigation in U.S. history. The report's conclusion was that the probable cause of the accident was the explosion of flammable fuel vapors in the center fuel tank. Although it could not be determined with certainty, the likely ignition source was a short circuit. Problems with the aircraft's wiring were found, including evidence of arcing in the fuel quantity indication system, where wiring enters the tank. The FQIS on Flight 800 is known to have been malfunctioning. The captain remarked about crazy readings from the system about two minutes and 30 seconds before the aircraft exploded. As a result of the investigation, new requirements were developed for aircraft to prevent future fuel tank explosions. I wonder if they're going back all the way to this one to look at McGonagall's role in that investigation. Okay. He was assigned to... I was always a fan of the conspiracy theory that it was a terrorist missile. But I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Okay. He was also assigned to the New York field office during the September 11th, 2001 attacks and joined a special response squad focusing on international terrorist threats post 9-11. But that didn't last very long before he was moved to FBI headquarters in Washington in 2002. Four years later, 2006, he became field supervisor of counter-espionage squad at the Washington field office, where he was assigned to help smash a network of Russian sleeper agents. McGonagall led, later led the FBI's WikiLeaks task force, investigating the release of more than 200,000 classified documents. This led to the 2013 conviction of Chelsea Manning on espionage and related charges. She was sentenced to 35 years, but had the term commuted to seven years by Obama. Isn't that dasting? Isn't that dasting? McGonagall shows up TWA Flight 800, 9-11, and then WikiLeaks, and then Chelsea Manning. By 2016, McGonagall was running the Bureau Cyber Counterintelligence Coordination Section, which analyzed Russian and Chinese hacking. What happened in the 2016 election? <laughs> <laughs> what hoaxes did the media run with in 2016 
what storylines dominated the news in 2016? <laughs> but in October that year, he achieved the pinnacle of his career with his appointment by FBI Director James Comey as Chief of the New York Office's Counterintelligence Division. That put him at the epicenter of some of the Bureau's most sensitive work, particularly in relation to Russian intelligence activities and U.S. attempts to recruit Moscow agents. He then retired in September 2018. His 50-month sentence... Handed down in Manhattan Federal Court in December 2023 came after he admitted taking money for digging dirt from notorious oligarch Oleg Deripaska. The treachery was even more damning because he was tasked with investigating the notorious industrialist. For the D.C. case, he has admitted concealing $225,000 bribe from an unnamed former Albanian spy while he was working for the FBI. We already know who that is from the other one. It's Agron Neza. We've read all of these articles on this show. Got this, got this. The bribe was to arrange meetings for a Bosnian pharmaceutical tycoon with a senior U.S. representative to the United Nations, preferably the then U.S. ambassador to the organization, Nikki Haley. The money was to fix those meetings. Blah, blah, blah. Dailymail.com can reveal an email McGonagall sent to Ju on June 25th, 2018, sealing the deal for the money. The recipient's name is redacted while the subject line is Bosnia. It is from what appears to be his private Yahoo account. This Isn't this funny, guys? Like, just side note. Dailymail.com is like, we can now reveal in an email that we obtained that McGonagall sent. And it's like, Guys, it's it's on the same docket that everybody on the Just Human show looked at last week. Like, this is a docket that anybody can go to, <laughs> and you can look at the exhibits. <laughs> but no, they, they, they write it as dailymail.com can reveal. Anyway. The message contained an exhibit in the government sentencing memo, and it reads, In support of your efforts to work with Redacted, I would propose the following structure. In furtherance of identifying, securing, and scheduling a meeting with a representative from the U.S. and the United Nations, a referral fee of $250,000 will be due as soon as the meeting is confirmed and scheduled. Once the meeting occurs, whatever the outcome, whether a second meeting is secured or no future meetings are secured or scheduled, an additional quarter million dollars will be due in two increments of $125,000 over a six-month period from the date of the meeting. Terms of this specific meeting with Redacted are confidential and not to be disclosed to third parties. Within the chain in which the email is sent, there is a mysterious message sent on February 14, 2018 from a redacted sender saying, quote, some Albanian wants me to meet this guy. Can you check and let me know what I should do? wonder if that's from Nikki Haley. Although the email mentions payments of 250000 the Department of Justice says the charges rela charge relates to two hundred twenty-five. In a damning verdict on the treachery with the Albanian, the government writes in the sentencing memo, Defendant Charles McGonigal supervised national security operations for the FBI in New York without disclosing to the FBI that he had taken hundreds of thousands of dollars from a businessman with ties to the Albanian government. Not only did he take the money in cash without disclosing it as required by law, but he also advanced the business interest of his benefactor and lied to the FBI about their joint activities. 
The defendant's concealment prevented the detection of the actual and apparent conflicts of interest between his official duties and his private financial interest. This is, at its core, corruption that undermines the transparency and trust and the integrity of the executive branch. And it added to the final blow, the defendant was sworn to investigate and prevent crimes against the United States, not perpetrate them. There's Oleg. The former spy chief, there's McGonagall being all swampy. The former spy chief made at least $200,000 a year in the FBI and $850,000 annually after he left, where he worked as the head of a global security firm for an international company. But according to prosecutors, the Albanian former intelligence operative who now lives in New Jersey as a natural-born citizen, natural, naturalized U.S. citizen, sorry, that'd be Agroneza, said McGonagall told him he needed money because of financial pressures due to his upcoming retirement and college-age children. I mean, $850,000 annually would certainly be pretty nice. I have two kids. I want them to go to college. <laughs> but I'm not going to sell out my country for it. Damn. McGonagall must report to prison on February 26th for the SDNY case. Previously revealed a six-page letter from his wife, Pamela, to New York a judge and for bearding a doom plea for mercy. Man, can you imagine that? I mean, I don't want to disparage I don't want to disparage his wife. But I don't know, man. I don't I don't know. I I'll avoid that. I'll I'll avoid that. I don't I don't know. I don't want to disparage his wife. He's definitely put her through some shit. So, but I just kind of surprised that she's sticking by him. After retiring from the FBI, Charlie was ambitious and was, okay, I don't want to read her letter. I don't want, I don't want to read anything from her. Okay. Uh, da, da, Charm Master's hand. Uh, Guerrero, the mistress. Government's asking for is not nearly sufficient. Yeah. Um, the, the extra mistress, Allison Guerrero, who turned McGonagall in in the DC case. She's trying to, she's lobbying the judge to get the judge to go beyond what the DOJ is asking for, which the DOJ is asking for a lot, but she's going like, no, 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 judge, you have discretion here. You can, you can chart, you can sentence him to more than what the government is asking for. It's okay. Yeah, I'll read this part from her. Guerrero. Um, a former vice president of a U.S. operations for Israeli security firm, Mifram, previously told the Daily Mail after New York sentencing, I cannot wipe the smile off my face knowing that he is going to be incarcerated. She was with McGonagall for 18 months before ending their relationship in December 2018, and she may have sparked the investigation into the former FBI chief. I, do th I really do think she did spark off the DC one. She discovered a bag containing $80,000 in rolled up bills at the apartment they were sharing in Brooklyn and alerted authorities some months after the split. 
At the time they were together, McGonagall's wife Pamela was living with their children at the family home in Chevy Chase, Maryland, just outside D.C. The spook went back to his wife after his affair ended. In another exclusive interview with Daily Mail, Guerrero revealed how McGonagall's lust for spectacular sex was so insatiable he demanded it up to five times a day. Well, that's great. She said he was so obsessed he gave the sessions quirky names and was addicted to encounters where they might be caught. I that See, I wonder... Well, I'll save it for a minute. McGonagall even talked about... Okay, this is this. This is not not safe for work. Warning. <laughs> McGonagall even talked about sex the first time the couple met for what should have been a purely business lunch, complaining his wife was refusing to make love with him, and he was frustrated. Well, you're a swamp creature, Charles. You're a swamp creature. Nobody wants to make love to a swamp creature. Charlie was spectacular. At, okay. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. All right. Let's, let's, uh, let's, let's, this is getting too racy, Daily Mail. Come on, Daily Mail. This is getting a little too racy. So they talk all about McGonagall's swampy sex, um, for a little while. Uh, but my comment, what I was going to say is that this reminds me of in the indictment in DC, uh, and in the, in the, uh, the sentencing submission from DOJ, they detail um, that Allison said that McGonagall was always talking about Nikki Haley and how they were friends and how her like UN suite or whatever was um, was really nice and like like how great Nikki Haley was. And I just can't help but wonder. Especially with this, that section right there, describing McGonagall basically being a sex fiend, okay? If McGonagall was so complimentary of Nikki Haley because they also had a thing. I'm just, I just, I'm just wondering, just wondering. So, but the main thing here is... All these investigations into this, what this guy did, like all of these, all these former business partners, you know, they're all, they all have these separate investigations and they're all being looked at. And I think this is just the beginning. Like we might be talking about McGonagall for years now. And part of me says, God forbid. But another part of me says, heck yeah, because this, this guy is so incredibly swampy and is connected to so many important cases. Who knows how deep his corruption ran and how long he had been bought off and had been influencing investigations, either shutting them down or opening them up. How many favors he had been doing inside the FBI. He had eyes on and hands on in so many important things that this headline of the FBI having to go back through 22 years of cases to try and figure out were they, were they done correctly? Um, you know, and oh, Moy, 
Moy Khoi, One Eye. Yeah, so I really, I really, really, really like CanCon's idea. CanCon said that CanCon's the first person I saw float this idea that McGonagall might be One Eye. Because, one, it makes sense he would have access to all these things, right? But he might be one-eyed because McGonagall could be a mispronunciation by foreigners, and it might sound like monocle. And so maybe he got the nickname with the foreigners of one-eye. And it's like a play on words. McGonagall, monocle, one-eye. And I I really, th I think there's something to, I think that's more compelling of a notion than it being Louis Free. Even though Louis Free pops up here and there with the Bidens, um, I just think that that, Louis Free was already out of the FBI. How would he have, he would have to be going through multiple connections to get insight. McGonagall was literally there in charge of the counter-espionage unit in New York. So like he could totally he could just go to his computer and log in and look at investigations and look at what were active, what were shut down, what were potential investigations, who was connected to who, what the FBI was focusing on, what they weren't, where they were look like when you have that kind of access, I mean he could he could figure out potentially where the FBI was focusing their anti money laundering efforts and other things like FBI is really focused on these ports. So move your goods through this other port. Like all sorts of information he could have been selling. McGonagall, Monocle, One Eye. It's a good thought by CanCon. Okay. Next story. I kind of I want to stick to that region of the world. So let's, let's talk Andrew Tate next. Okay. Warning about this segment. If you're one of the, the listeners who has me on and you have minors around or anything, like you have kids around, this there's some video clips in here. They're going to use some really strong language. And of course, some of the subject matter is not appropriate. So just, just fair warning. So Andrew Tate, the Tate brothers... Predators, in my view, who have gotten way, way too much positive attention from people on the right. Um, and it's shocking to me. It's shocking to me that they are looked on favorably by anybody on the right. Um, but this invest there's been an investigation done by the journalist at OCCRP, which is a group very much worth following. They put out some great journalism and they uncovered some documents showing that the Tate brothers have a casino business, which was not unknown. They bragged about it. Like they brag about everything. Um, but their, their casino business is part of a organized crime group and they, they're in, they're in a partnership with this organized crime group in Romania. Outspoken misogynist and social media sensation Andrew Tate made many bombastic claims before his December 22nd or 2022 arrest in Romania. By the way, his investigation has been extended. 
I saw a report saying that uh, he, uh, the um, the Romanians have ex- further extended his, I think his house arrest too, but I'm not positive. But they've extended the investigation. It's still ongoing. Um, that would be the one on in on human trafficking and rape charges. One of the most striking was that he was working with unnamed Romanian gambling kingpins to operate casinos in Eastern Europe, European country where Tate has chosen to base himself because, as he has said, it's a place where, quote, corruption is accessible to everybody. In multiple interviews, Tate claimed to have partnered up with some, quote, brothers, mafia guys who owned, quote, 400 gambling locations from Estonia all the way down to east of Europe and to have helped his new partners push competitors out of business. But there was no evidence of self-styled king of masculinity, king of predation, actually had interest in any casinos, much less 400, and Tate never publicly revealed the names of his business partners. But now reporters from Rise Project Romania, an OCCRP member center, have found evidence that Andrew Tate and his younger brother Tristan really did have a financial interest in at least six Las Vegas brand casinos, along with two alleged organized crime figures known as the Dorofti brothers, or Dorofte. I'm going to say Dorofti. The, the Tates are currently under investigation for rape, along with forming a criminal organization in order to recruit and force women to produce pornography. Ramona Bola, a spokesperson for the country's directorate for investigating organized crime and terrorism, which is DICOT, told OCCRP that their casino interests are not currently being scrutinized. Quote, so far we are not investigating regarding their activities in the gambling in- industry. I think the key phrase there is so far. So far. Lawyers for the Tate brothers did not respond to requests for comment. Tristan Tate told reporters via WhatsApp that he had no comment on the casino business. Joint venture contracts obtained by reporters show that profits from at least six branches of Las Vegas brand casinos were shared between Talisman Enterprises, a Romanian company controlled by the Tate brothers, and a company owned by the Dorofti brothers called DMS Bet Live SRL, which was licensed in Romania to operate fixed odds betting. Talisman didn't have a license, and would not have been able to operate the casinos on its own. Las Vegas is one of the biggest casino chains in Romania, with over 800 venues across the country. The chain is run through a complex group of companies that all appear to play different roles in its operations, from paying rents to operating slot machines, including DMS BetLive. On top of this, the different Las Vegas branches also run through joint ventures with other unrelated companies like Talisman. In its joint venture with the Tates, DMS agreed to provide betting terminals, while Talisman would provide the commercial space for the casinos. So the gambling part of it is the DMS crew that has the licenses. Tate Brothers, through their Talisman company, go and purchase or lease the property in which those casinos are then installed. In three of the six gambling locations, Talisman also had to provide employees and cash machine equipment. The agreements prohibited the Tates from doing business with any competitors to the Las Vegas casinos. 
Reporters were not able to obtain information on how the arrangement worked in practice. The Las Vegas Casino Group confirmed it did have a business relationship with the Tates, but said that the relationship had been terminated. That's interesting. One of the Las Vegas branches the two companies partnered on is in Bercini, a neighborhood of communist-era apartment blocks on the outskirts of Romanian capital of Bucharest. Painted bright red, the street-level casino stands out against the hulking gray concrete building above. The Las Vegas casino owes little to its glitzy American namesake. There are no poker tables staffed by smart-suited dealers, just dark rooms with rows of slot machines, where workers and retirees gamble away their minimum wage salaries or state pensions. Quote, I'm a gambling addict who already lost two apartments, admitted one local who spoke to reporters outside of Las Vegas casino in the Vuitton neighborhood of Bucharest. Or Viton, I don't know. Dimas appears to stand for Durofte and the brothers' first names, Mahata and Soren. Several members of what they call their family have DMS tattooed on their bodies, according to videos reported, reporters found on social media. One man with the DMS tattoo, who also had never plead guilty inked on his right hand, checked in on Facebook at a Tate Casino, adding the status at work. In a podcast interview, Andrew Tate explained how he first hooked up with his business partners although he did not name them. A former kickboxing competitor, Tate was commenting on a live cage fight sponsored by DMS, which began with local fighters before expanding to include international mixed martial arts stars. The Rofty brothers had founded a mixed martial arts brand called Real Extreme Fighting, RXF. Tate said he approached one of the casino owners at the RXF show and made him an offer. Quote, I will open up directly next door to your number one competitor, Tate said he told the prospective partner. So I'll go to war for you with my money right next door to your number one competitor. Even if it doesn't make any money, you're getting paid off for the turnover. It's going to take some money from your competitor. I am taking all the risk. And he agreed, said Tate. Reporters could not confirm whether that incident occurred as Tate described it, but Bola the spokesperson for Dicot said that the Roftes encountered the Tate brothers during a competition and that where they were in connection with the brothers. By the time that meeting with the Tates happened, the Doroftes had managed to recruit organized crime groups to take over sections of the gambling industry through Romania and according to Bola, or sorry, according to Bola, they had an entire network of gambling places where they controlled what happened. Many organized crime figures in Romania live the fast life and show off their bling on social media, but the Dorofti brothers keep a low profile and are relatively unknown to the public. And until recently, the anti-crime, anti-organized crime authorities. They were unknown to Dicot even in 2019 when Romanian police wiretapped a local cocaine smuggler who was working for the Las Vegas casinos. The man was overheard discussing a powerful figure he did not name directly, but referred to as the Pole. Well, Maheta Dorofte has Polish citizenship. He's opening everywhere in Romania. He's taking over all the casinos all by himself, said the wiretapped smuggler. Anti-organized crime prosecutors have begun investigating the group behind the Las Vegas casinos and linked it with what the smuggler had said. The investigation culminated in November 2022 police raids on 123 locations linked to Las Vegas casinos, which brought in dozens of alleged gang members for questioning. Many of these people had prior convictions for serious crimes, including human trafficking, drug smuggling, blackmail, 
weapon smuggling, and attempted murder. During the raids, police confiscated bags of cocaine as well as a half million dollars in European cash, half million euros in cash, and weapons including a gun and two crossbows. Law enforcement officials said that Dorofte had managed Dorofte's had managed to bring together rival mafia clans, some of which had fought each other on the streets. We see something that we have not encountered in the past. The leaders of this organized crime group have forgotten their pride in order to share their spheres of influence and benefit, said Cosman Andrecha, head of the Romanian branch of Europol. They are appealing to their common interest, gaining money. They are the kind of people who can gain access to these organized crime figures and they can influence them in working for a common goal that's getting more money. In November, prosecutors said they had arrested 28 people in relation to alleged organized criminal activity, blackmail, violent acts, and kidnapping. That investigation is ongoing. An arrest warrant was... See, this one right here? See, some. I'm kind of wondering if there's... If there's more than one reason the Tates are involved with this crime group. If it's not just casinos. An arrest warrant was issued for Maheda Dorofti, but Romanian authorities have not been able to arrest him. He told our OCCRP through his lawyer that he is in Poland, where he has been a citizen for a decade. He denied that he is on the run, and he just simply lives in Poland with his wife and two kids. The claim that he has evaded prosecution is slightly forced, said his lawyer. Maheta's brother, Soren, was in Romania when police raids happened and he was initially put under judicial oversight, meaning that he couldn't leave the country, had to report regularly to authorities, and was barred from communicating with other people charged in the case. After an appeal, a court ruled on May 23rd that Soren was allowed to leave Romania, which his lawyer said was evidence of his innocence, although other restrictions remain in place. Okay, after a period of probably six months, okay. Some accused members of the gang allegedly headed by the Dorofties were hired by Las Vegas as maintenance staff, according to prosecutors. In reality, the workers were there to make sure the Dorofties got their share of the profits. This included assaulting gamblers and stealing their winnings. The crime group allegedly used violence to prevent the expansion of gambling halls competing with those that they operated. Typical Vegas stuff, right? All right, now... We're going, to, we're going to circle back to Andrew Tate. The raids on the Las Vegas casinos came just a month before police arrested Andrew Tate and Tristan, who are dual citizens of the U.S. and U.K., but spend large amounts of time in Romania. Like the Dorofdes, the Tate brothers have been charged by prosecutors who are continuing to investigate their case before deciding whether to indict them. Tristan Tate said he was innocent of the accusations, Quote, I do not commit crimes and I treat all people I meet, men, women, kids, with respect. That is 100% a lie. <laughs> An absolute falsehood. Andrew Tate could not be reached, but also denied the charges. The trafficking charges against them have been widely reported. But RISE and OCCRP have learned that prosecutors are also investigating whether the Tate's laundered money earned in sex trafficking through Romanian real estate though documents seen by reporters don't expose the amounts earned or the schemes involved. So Andrew, so the Tate brothers are under investigation for human trafficking, rape, and money laundering. So far. 
We are also investigating money laundering, but we are not charging them with money laundering because we still need to gain more evidence, said Bola. Andrew Tate has publicly claimed to make $300,000 to $600,000 per month from coercing women to perform sexual acts on the internet. That's not an accusation leveled at him. That is Andrew Tate's own claim that he has been making for years. Speaking on his online Hustlers University platform, which offered courses on how to make quick cash as well as pimping hose degree or PhD. Tate explained that forcing women to work 12 plus hour shifts was integral to success. Tate bragged about having 75 women performing sexual acts on webcams and said he kept 80% of the proceeds for himself. Quote, this is a quote. They basically work for free. They work for my love and attention. According to Romanian prosecutors, the Tate brothers' tactics amounted to human trafficking. Prosecution documents included testimonies from victims who described being lured by their brothers with promises of a romantic relationship, then abused, threatened, and forced to perform. One Moldovan woman said Andrew Tate, quote, told me to take my clothes off to keep my shoes on. Then he slapped me across the face. Then he raped her. Another victim from the U.S. told prosecutors that the Tate brothers, quote, use the bodies of young girls for financial gains, and the girls do it because they really think they are in love and they are frightened. That fits with his uh, Ph.D. lectures. That right, what that woman described. That fits with their lectures. They, their, like their lectures, they, their videos from their Hustler University platform. They talk about this is how you get the girl to fall in love with you. And then this is how you convert her thinking she's in love with you and that you love her into money for you. Tate's students were instructed in one of his online courses that it's best to target vulnerable women for exploitation. Quote, the ones who made me the most money had their dads dead or lived in fucked up neighborhoods. According to victim testimonies, the women were kept in voluntary or whoa. Okay. That's just a English language weirdness right there in voluntary a suburb of bucharest where the tates owned two houses including one that featured aluminum siding in the same red and black colors used by the las vegas casino brand y'all remember their homes like you've seen what the tate brothers that house in romania looks like it's the same color scheme as that Now, there's a video that goes with this, and uh, this OCCRP, there's a video they had, but I don't know why it's not displaying right now. I don't know if it's my browser or, oh, there it is. Now it is. I just need to refresh. Okay. This is, this is 10 minutes long, but I, I think it's worth playing, honestly. Um. But I do want to give a warning for language and subject matter, although it is a YouTube, so it's not it's not that bad. It's it's okay for YouTube. But just in case you have kids around or something, just fair warning on the language stuff. Let me um see why is it Oh, I know why. I know why it's grabbing my monitor. Here, hold on. Let me see. See if this works better.
Nope. There we go. I like this because it's the it's the Tate brothers in their own words exposing how accurate or how fitting these charges are. Like and also I like it because they're bragging about their criminality. So they're like they're so stupid. Like they're so stupid. They're they're giving all the details about their cr criminality on video in a way to by bragging about their crimes. And then it's all catching up with them now, anyway. All right. Imagine a man who owns a casino. So obviously you're gonna be a bit intimidated by the man who owns a casino. Like what kind of friends does he have to own a casino? Now imagine a man who owns 15 casinos. Andrew Tate, casino in Romania. How do you generate your income? The first thing is I own some casinos in Romania. Three brothers, mafia guys, they own 400 casinos throughout Eastern Europe. I came up to them and said, look, I want to do a franchise with you. They agreed. Așa că am încercat să vedem dacă este adevărat. Când am aflat că au fost arestați pentru trafic de persoane și viol, am răscolit internetul după numele lor. Ne-am uitat la lupte, la pornografie, video chat. N-a fost chiar confortabil. Apoi ne-am uitat în monitorul oficial și am făcut o cerere la Registrul Comerțului din România. Așa le-am descoperit afacerile din România, inclusiv o firmă care se numește Talisman Enterprises. Ăștia sunt pași de bază într-o documentare. Apoi am avut și noroc. În documente apăreau niște adrese suspecte de puncte de lucru din București și Ilpun, fără alte detalii. Când l-am căutat pe Google Maps, acolo nu erau decât niște blocuri. Imaginile nu erau la zi. Așa că am mers mai departe. Am mai făcut o cerere la Registrul Comerțului și am așteptat încă 10 zile. Și aici a venit surpriza, de fapt. Firma fraților Tate semnase contracte cu alte societăți comerciale care dețin cazinouri. Asta se găsea la adresele respective, de fapt. Cazinouri. Cumva a fost surprinzător tocmai pentru că era adevărat. Frații Tate fac bani din cel puțin patru cazinouri din București. Ele se numesc Las Vegas. Dimineața asta merge la cazinourile fraților Tate, cele patru pe care le-am identificat. Ei pretind că au mai multe. Vrem să vedem cum arată. What I tried to do was find ones in between their competitor and a Starbucks. I'd open in the middle and I'd offer loads and loads of free coffee with a barista and a sexy chick. So instead of going to Starbucks, you could just take your money, go get free coffee and gamble. Suntem la periferia orașului, nu suntem în centru unde găsești în mod normal un Starbucks fancy sau cafenele de genul ăsta. Suntem într-una dintre zonele sărace ale Bucureștiului, unde 
jucătorii nu sunt foarte bogați. Este un cartier comunist, efectiv. Și oamenii vin aici să joace salariu minim pe economie, pensie. Clar, ăsta nu e un casino fancy. Puțin mai acolo o benzinărie, puțin mai încolo sunt niște case dărăpânate. Nu prea văd cum s-ar potrivi cu descrierea lui Top G. I think it fits with Andrew Tate's MO of the type of people he targets, right? So he targets women who have experienced abuse or loss of fathers or grew up poor or whatever, like some type of struggle. He's focusing on his casinos being located in areas that are going to attract other people who are also struggling, right? Like he's not putting them in rich places trying to get people who are wildly successful to come in and gamble. He's focusing them in poor areas and areas where there's likely to be people who are down and looking for some magic way to solve um, their their economic struggles, right? You see a similar pattern in the U.S. Nothing new. Nu știu a cui și cum e cazinor, eu sunt jucător doar. Și ăsta e mai special față de altă. Bingo, Iowa Trump. Yeah, it's his recruiting grounds. Like, you watch this and you're like, you know what? This would probably be a great area for the Tate brothers to find women who they could use in their sex trafficking business and in their porno business, right? Like, these types of areas, this is where they could find them. So at the same time they're running a casino... Brand is owned by... At the same time, they're running a casino and making money off of the profit sharing from their arrangement with that organized crime group. They are also running a recruitment center. And this casino brand is owned by Free Brothers. I overheard them say something like they turn over like 18 million a day or something. Something ridiculous money. Ridiculous money. These three yep, Tom. Like typical Eastern European mafia. Imagine, you know. Tom Fitness Hot says just like Maxwell and Epstein. Exactly. Exactly. Fat, bald, cigar. Deci, cine sunt partenerii de afacere ai fraților Tate? Chiar sunt interlopi? Chiar s-ar lăuda frații Tate că s-au asociat cu interlopi? Nu i-ar da în fapt? Ne-am uitat mai atent la ei. Documentele pe care le-am obținut sunt contracte de tip joint venture, semnate între compania fraților Tate, pe de o parte Talisman Enterprises, și de cealaltă parte o societate numită DMS Life. La final, profiturile sunt împărțite 50-50. DMS e o firmă care a fost licențiată ca operator de jocuri de noroc. Numele ei aparent vine de la cei doi proprietari, frații Doroftei Mihăiță și Sorin. Se potrivește cu ce a spus Andrew Tate, doar că sunt doi frați, nu trei. Nu se știu foarte multe despre frații Doroftei, se țin departe de lumina reflectoarelor și nu sunt genul pe care ea îi asocia în mod normal cu crimă organizată. Frații Doroftei sunt mai degrabă cunoscuți la noi ca fondatorii Erixef, o gală de lupte în MMA. Organizează lupte în cușcă. Evenimentele sunt constant sponsorizate de cazinourile lor, Las Vegas. Că avem bani și ne permitem că suntem sponsorizați, bineînțeles, de către cei de la Las Vegas. Fratele cel mare, Mihăiță Doroftei, e aproape invizibil pe social media. Am reușit totuși să găsim câteva fotografii vechi cu el pe conturile de social media ale unor apropiați. 
Apoi le-am găsit familia, împrăștiată pe social media, adică prieteni, parteneri, asociați. Aici cineva pare că îi plătește unui cântăresc de manele o dedicație pentru familia lor. În gruparea de mese găsim mai mulți oameni care își poartă blazonul tatuat pe corp. În clipul ăsta, unul dintre cei mai celebri cântăreți de manele din România primește bani ca să-i facă o dedicație lui Mihai Țăduroftei. Să ne oprim aici, a spus Mihăiță Polonez. E foarte important. Am descoperit că, deși e născut la Brașov, Mihăiță Doroftei are și cetățenie poloneză. Am căutat prin dosare vechi și am dat peste o stenogramă de la o întâlnire de taină dintre un traficant de droguri și locotenenții săi. Aflăm că un investitor polonez a adus în 2019 la aceeași masă clanuri interdope din toată România ca să pornească împreună o afacere în industria jocurilor de noroc. Voia să deschidă cazinouri în toate orașele mari din România și să devină numărul 1 în piață. Și odată pe lună trebuie să merg în Dubai, în Maroc, în Tunisia, în fiecare lună în altă locație și ne dă și de polonezul, întreabă altcineva. Da, nu contează. Gestul lor de polonez deschide în... Pause just for a moment. So for everybody who is uh, listening to the podcast version of the show, which there's like a, there's about a thousand people who listen to this show on podcast, um, which you can do through justhuman.substack.com. It's all free, but that's where the podcast comes out of. Um, I wanted to, I just wanted to say like, you're listening to this guy and it's this, you can't see, obviously if you're on audio, you can't see what all he's showing and what he's talking about and what the subtitles are saying. But this is one of the journalists who was on this investigation, um, who the art that wrote the article I just read and he's going through their evidence. They have the documents that they have and he's going through, um, these mafia brothers and how, like all the OSINT that they did on them to try and figure out who they were and who they were connected to. And, um, It's 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 a lot of what was already in the article that I read, but he's showing on screen videos and documents and uh, the receipts for what is in the article. In toată România, el ia toate cazinourile, deschide numai el. Mai zic că polonezu a chemat clanuri din toată țara la un fel de conferință interlopilor. Practic, investitorul polonez a reușit să facă clanuri rivale să lucreze împreună. Surse judiciare ne-au confirmat off the record că, de fapt, stenograma asta face referire la cazinourile Las Vegas. Dar devine și mai interesant. Chiar înainte ca frații Tate să fie arestați pentru... Alright, so, for audio podcast listeners, so, the guy, the journalist just explained everything about the Mafia Brothers. Now he's bringing in the Tate Brothers and saying, this is where the Tate Brothers come in. Because just before they were arrested on charges of human trafficking and rape, all these places had been raided by the police. Um, what was it, 123 or whatever it was. And uh, over 100 places were raided by the police. It's showing some video of, of the police raids. So, logically it follows that since these places that were involved with the mob, this organized crime group, and all these places were raided, 
these casinos and the the Tate brothers were business partners with this casino group that just got raided and then the then the the Tate brothers get raided a month later and brought up on charges of rape and human trafficking and these casinos are being raided for money laundering human trafficking etc uh narcotics running it follows that these raids and the the raid of the these casinos and the raid of the Tates are connected they're not isolated different um different police activities they're connected police activities so i wanted to, i wanted to show that quick video i think it's really good i i'm a big fan of this group OCCRP, which stands for Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, um, they do a lot of swamp creature tracking. Um, and I find their work to be very, very good. I do think they have a bit of a... They do that same thing that Western media does, where every time it's a Russian oligarch, they say it's a Putin puppet. Um without actually being able to connect that person to Putin. Um, but they do a whole bunch of really, really good reporting. Um, and they have some, some good stuff on the Panama papers and, uh, Pandora papers, the laundromats in the middle East. They do great stuff. So this is one of the sites I checked. Here's, um, just to give them a quick shout out. I haven't done this in a while. So you guys know that if you've been watching for a while, what I really care about is, uh, or one of the things I really care about with this show is tracking swamp draining, because to me, that's one of the biggest white pills out there. Uh, and one of the best ways to guard your mind against the, the, the misery, misery assaults that we all endure online every day, trying to get us to doom out is to go and find the white pills of things that are actually happening. And the OCCRP, which is at OCCRP.org. And they also have a good, good Twitter. Um, I go here pretty often because it's full of white pills, in my opinion. And it's either just straight up information, just OSINT information gathering, and, and or actual happenings of indictments and investigations and convictions, etc. So this is one of the places where I go to keep track of all the, of the swamp draining, international swamp draining in particular, and get, gather a lot of white pills from it. Now, back to the Tate brothers and the reason I, I did this whole th segment. Um, I wanted to present this thing about the Tate brothers because I think they are one of the worst trends going on in the MAGA world. And I think they've been forced into the MAGA world. I don't think it's organic at all. Um, I think that there's some sort of, and maybe they're behind it, you know, maybe they wanted it and they did it on purpose. Um, or maybe it's a misunderstanding. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. Maybe it's, it's probably a mix. It's probably a mix of things. But I think these two guys are some of the most corrupt and despicable humans to to be on the face of the earth right now. They're they're absolute predators. And all you have to do is look at their own words and their own businesses. It doesn't take a lot of work to find out just how terrible these two guys are. 
Um, I mean, they're, they're, they're evil. And I think I understand that a lot of the right gets attracted to them because they say things that are, uh, clippable and you know like pro pro man or pro masculinity or whatever um anti-political correctness or whatever and i get that i can see where that that aspect of them is attractive um and you would initially think oh well these guys are pushing back against the woke mob i like that these guys are pushing back against political correctness i like that so, these guys must be on our side, quote-unquote. But the more you look at them, it just takes a little bit of work. You find out how terrible they are and that they're not compatible with conservative values or liber- even libertarian values. Um, they're, I think predators really is the right word to describe them. They literally sold online courses on how to how to be a predator and acquire women as prey and use them for one your own pleasure to your financial gain so and and that's i mean they sold courses on how to pimp that's what andrew tate called it he said that i'm selling courses to teach you how to be your own how to be a pimp so they're they're not compatible with MAGA at all, yet they they keep on getting lumped in with MAGA. And I think some of that is inorganic. A lot of it is inorganic. Um, so I wanted to focus on this because I think it's an it's a element of of toxic, like a toxic pill. It's a it's a toxic thing that has crept its way into the MAGA verse, if you will. Um, and I know that a lot of us, we encounter people who will defend these guys. Like, and that, which is really weird, but you'll meet a lot of people who will defend these guys, uh, which it's, it's weak. It's a weak defense, but they still will. So I wanted to cover this for the reason of giving you guys some information to use in combating people when they defend the Tate brothers. Um, I wanted to show you, like give you some, some concrete stuff that you can go back to them and say, no, 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 no. You need to read this report on what the, what these guys were engaged in. So, um, that's, that's the purpose here. You know, I think that one of the things that we have to do is, you know, we, we find we can fo- we can focus a lot of attention on quote unquote the other side on the left and uh, problematic people in the left and problematic ideologies and whatnot on the left and uh, the deep state and whatnot. But we also also have to make sure to clean our own house. And I think that in our house we have some scum like the Tate brothers who have crept their way into our own house and. Um, organically and inorganically. And so I think part of keeping our own house clean is to reject the Tate brothers. Okay. I've got about 40 minutes left. Um, let's see. 
We're going to talk about the America First Legal document tonight on Devolution Power Hour. So I'm going to save that. Instead, let's talk about J6 Pipe Bomber. My pleasure, R.L. Skeeter. Okay. Yeah, it's Daily Wire. I know. I know it's Daily Wire. But there's been some there's been some good reporting over here, and there's some interesting stuff in this right here, okay? So this is from January 29th, Luke Rosiak over at the Daily Wire. FBI tied January 6th pipe bomber to MetroCard of ex-government official, but blocked interview of him, former agent says. A former FBI agent said that the Bureau quickly believed that it tied the person who planted pipe bombs at the Democratic National Committee and the Republican National Committee to a particular Metro Fair card and license plate, but did not allow him to interview the person of interest and pulled his team off of the lead. The allegation raises more questions about the pipe bombs, which were by far the most violent aspect of the January 6th protest, but which Democrats and authorities have seldom mentioned since. Kyle Serafin, who led FBI surveillance teams, told the Daily Wire that shortly after January 6th, a counterintelligence team met him at a firehouse in Falls Church, Virginia, to brief him on his next surveillance target. They had used security footage to follow the person into a metro station after he planted the bombs and identified the fare card that was used. The fare card then allowed them to determine that the person got off at a metro stop in Northern Virginia, where surveillance footage showed the person entering a car. Both the car and the fare card were in the name of the same person, a retired Air Force Chief Master Sergeant who was now working as a contractor with a security clearance. Seraphin and his team were assigned to stake out the person's row house for days, but the FBI blocked his request for interviewing the person, he said. Then they were called off the target completely and told to pour through low-priority leads about minor January 6th participants. Quote, allegedly someone threw bombs around the Capitol which could have killed congressmen or a busload of nuns or anything. And the answer is, you can't follow this guy around. You have to go to the headquarters and read leads where someone said, I might have went to high school with some guy that was standing around the Capitol, Seraphin told the Daily Wire. Seraphin said the bomber wasn't necessarily the same person of interest to whom the car and card were registered to. So it's not, it's not concrete here that the J6 pipe bomber is the guy whose name is on this card. But there's some weird connection here where the pipe bomber has this person's card. It's a highly specific lead that, if pursued, had a good chance of leading investigators to the suspect. Quote, they found people based on their earlobes that were hanging out by a flagpole, he said of the Bureau's persistence in pursuing more minor January 6th wrongdoings. He said the case was being run by the Counterintelligence Division, which are not manhunters used to apprehend people and build prosecutable cases. He said the team called in his surveillance team only to go ahead and quickly cut it off. All right, so if it's running by, if it's being run by the counterintelligence division, 
that is a clue. Here. That is a clue. Because what does the FBI counterintelligence unit do? The counterintelligence division is a division that protects the United States against what? Foreign intelligence operations and espionage. It hunts spies and prevents espionage through the use of investigation and interaction with local law enforcement. So, if J6 pipe bombing investigation is being run out of the counterintelligence division, that leads me to think that the pipe bombs connect to a foreign group. They brought in Seraphin's surveillance team to do surveillance, but they didn't have them go in and do the interview. If it's because it's a counterintelligence investigation against foreigners, like a foreign intelligence group or paramilitary group or something, it kind of makes sense, right? He said it was not surprising that the FBI would have traced the bomber, and in fact, it would be more surprising if they hadn't. Quote, they can do telephonic capture and triangulate your phone in real time. The Bureau is far too competent to fail at this. When they had the World Trade Center bombing in 93, they went under four stories of rubble and were able to find a partial VIN number that they used to track it down to the people responsible. And you're telling me you had a pristine, non-detonated bomb and they couldn't find anything on it? The FBI was re has released only a couple of grainy pictures of the bomber, despite massive security co camera coverage on Capitol Hill. Though the bomber was seen talking on a phone... It has said it may not have been able to identify him with the cell phone records because a database was corrupted. That's the other, that's like one of the most funny things about this. That's one of the most funny things about this is that it just so happens that cell phone records that were specific to records that would identify or help identify the bomber were corrupted post J6 somehow. The Washington Times first reported the allegation in May 2023. The article, which was paywalled, did not get widespread attention. Yet when the House Judiciary Committee interviewed Steve D'Antuano, the former head of the FBI's Washington field office, it seemed to be on his mind. Quote, People like Kyle Serafin and others that are not a case agent have no knowledge of the case, have no knowledge of what happened in the case. He also made another accusation, too, that there was an individual with a Metro card. My understanding is all that was chased down. There was a lead that was chased down, but he says that we didn't chase it down, D'Antuano said. So remember, Kyle Serafin was on the surveillance team, but Kyle Serafin is not the case agent. D'Antuano said no. Kyle Serafin doesn't know the entire case and what we're working on and what leads we're following. He's only aware of a portion of it. His comments seemed to confirm that the MetroCard lead did exist, though, and he did not explain how or why it ultimately resulted in nothing. The FBI's Washington field office did not return the Daily Wire's request for comment, and immediately after claiming that Serafin would not know details because he was not a, quote, case agent, Dan Tuano acknowledged that he himself did not know even basic details about the investigation because he was far removed from the case agent's as a top leader, okay? That also makes sense. So you got 
Seraphin's over there on the surveillance team. He's not the case agent handling the case. Dantuano is the guy in charge, but he's not day-to-day -day handling the actual case. He's not one of the case agents. Dantuano went on ABC to hype up the apparent MAGA terrorist threat in 2022 and say, quote, they would have exploded. They could have exploded, calling the pipe bombs viable devices. But in the transcribed interview with Congress, he acknowledged that the bombs had a 60-minute kitchen timers attached to them, and they had not exploded 17 hours later. Quote, I saw the same kitchen timer as you. I agree. I don't know when they were supposed to go off. Maybe they weren't supposed to go off, he said. All right, I want to address something about the pipe bombs and them being viable. I think there's some confusion here that's being exploited a little bit. And I think it's, I don't think it's nefarious. I think it's just, I think it's just uh, people misunderstanding words. The bombs are, were viable. The ingredients were there for the bomb to go off, but they weren't constructed correctly because obviously they didn't go off and they had a one hour kitchen timer that after 17 hours hadn't gone off. So all the components were there. Like as far as a bomb, like as far as the components you need in order to make a bomb that will go off, they were all there. So the devices were viable. Okay, that word viable, that works. They're viable. Boom, whiskey tango, thank you. But they weren't operable. They're viable, but not operable. They were not in a condition where they would operate correctly and detonate. For whatever reason, the timers weren't configured right. The wiring wasn't done right. Like, I don't know. But there's this confusion that happens with the bombs where people say they were fake or they weren't, they didn't even work or whatever. They didn't work, but they were still viable. They still had all, so like, this is important though, right? This is important. They weren't, it's not like they were fake bombs. They were real. And somebody needs to be charged for them. <laughs> somebody needs to be charged for constructing and placing and whatever else involved with these things. Um, and we don't want them getting off because, like in some way or getting some sort of leniency because they didn't work. If you, if you plant a bomb and you mean for it to go off and injure people, just because it didn't work doesn't mean you didn't intend for it to and you didn't intend to do harm, right? So anyway, I just want to address that because that, com that comes up here and there. there. It's viable. They were viable, but not operable. Okay. And his comment, maybe they weren't supposed to go off, that might be a hint, honestly. That, that might be a hint from Stephen Dantuano. Like, that's, that's an aside, kind of like a Trump aside. That's an aside comment. But there may be something to it. Maybe they were never meant to go off. They were just meant to be a distraction that day. And it's so weird... Because who found them? Who found these bombs? One of them was a person who worked for a company that handles emergency services telecommunications who was doing laundry. The first cop on the scene to that bomb, the very first cop, was later charged with obstruction and convicted 
because he was in communication with a J6 defendant who he told to erase evidence off of his social media and text messages and emails. And he was convicted for obstruction. The other pipe bomb was found by an undercover um, Capitol Police guy, officer. So you got two strange, two strange things going on, or at least curious things, right? With both of these bombs, with the Capitol Police and both of these bombs. There's something, there's something weird there. Serafin said that when he was assigned to the case, he asked about the bombs and his team was briefed by the FBI that they were not at risk of detonating. It was an officer safety question. You're going to work a case differently if they're not real. You can get closer. Rep. Thomas Massey, a member of the Judiciary Committee, asked Antuano about the pipe bombs after uncovering a video that showed a person pointing out the pipe bomb to officers outside the DNC, only to have the officers react with no urgency, even letting children across the street afterward. This is this recent video that's come out um, right here. Let me grab this. I don't, think there's any, I don't think there's any audio on it. One of the people that comes up. Where is it? That, is that guy jogging? There he is. There he is. See this cop car? This guy walks out to it. He's an undercover MPD guy, and he's going over there to alert him about the pipe bomb. Is my understanding of this video. And it just keeps going. And then a little bit later, another officer comes by. Let's see, where did they come from? That guy gets out. So this is a couple minutes later. And they decide they're going to walk over there. Then somebody gets control of the camera to pan it to that location. And see, there they are. There's the benches where he sat down at and left the bomb. This camera zooming in on it. So word got around to this camera over there that there might be a device in this area. And the camera operator is moving it around because of that, right? Okay. Rip Thomas Massey, blah, blah, blah. No urgency. Massey told the Daily Wire that the officer's reaction was not congruent with someone who believes that they have just learned of what might be a real bomb feet away from a party headquarters and raises the question of whether they knew it was planted there. Some of those personnel were Secret Service guarding Kamala Harris. So you saw some of these guys there in the long coats and the suits, right? So those are probably her Secret Service. That guy, that guy, that guy, possibly this person.
the Department of Justice initially falsely stated that Harris was in the Capitol, not the DNC, which allowed them to avoid the question of why the Secret Service didn't find the bomb. Serafin said there's zero chance that the Secret Service would have missed a pipe bomb sitting in almost plain sight when preparing a site for the vice president-elect. They're far too good for that, he said. Serafin said of the video, that's not how you react to a bomb. I don't care who you are, unless they had reason in advance to believe it wasn't real. Both bombs were reportedly planted around 8 p.m. the night of January 5th and remained unreported until both were discovered within minutes of each other at the exact same time that the Capitol was being breached. Capitol Police have said that January 6th got out of hand because they were forced to divert resources to the bombs instead of crowd control. Harris has gone out of her way not to mention the bomb, even implying that she was safe from January 6th because, quote, I had left. When in fact, she had left for a location roughly 30 feet away from a purported bomb. Darren Beatty, a reporter for Revolver News, has also, unco- has also uncovered numerous discrepancies around the pipe bombs and joined Massey for online chat on Thursday. He said that in addition to the details that don't add up, there is the glaring fact that Democrats have omitted all mention of the most dramatic part of January 6th, even as they seek to cast it as a violent insurrection. How dark, how dirty, how damning, how embarrassing does the truth have to be for these salivating political opportunists, opportunists, for them to have them to forego the obvious political advantages of this talking point. That is a great. That's a great point from Darren Beatty. Why do Democrats? Why why does the mainstream media, Democrats, the J Six Committee, why do they? Ignore the January 6th pipe bomb. Bombs. Why why do they ignore it? You would think that they would be using that along with every other allegation they make about January 6th. Just a little bit more on this. Back around to that fair card. So, Full Nelson asked the reporter that wrote that article, Luke Rosiak, did you investigate Calith Wright being the pipe bomber at, at all? Seems irresponsible to leave obvious identifiers without doing some more journalism. Someone should debunk this if they can. So, the article says, that fair card allowed them to determine that the person got off at a metro stop in Northern Virginia, where surveillance footage showed a person entering a car. Both the car and the fair card were in the name of the same person, a retired Air Force Chief Master Sergeant, who was now working as a contractor with a security clearance. And Fool Nelson post, boom, Calith O'Wright, active TSSCI security clearance. This is from his LinkedIn. Leadership consultant, executive coach, professional speaker, chief master sergeant of the Air Force, retired. 
lives in Dumfries, Virginia. Now, Thunder B, a great follow on X, another one, says this guy wasn't just a retired master sergeant from the Air Force. When, when I went to bed last night, they were still arguing about this. So I don't know where this argument, well, not arguing. They were kicking this back and forth about this guy. So I don't know where this goes. Let's find out. This guy wasn't just a retired master sergeant from the Air Force. He was the chief master sergeant of the Air Force, the most senior enlisted person of the entire Air Force. Bull Nelson asks, well, how many are there at a time? Trust is earned, says one. And Full Nelson's like, well, I thought I thought it was just a chief master, a chief master sergeant. No, no, maybe not. He was the CMSGT of the U.S. Air Force. It's like Highlander. There can only be one. His wife is a retired master sergeant. And then she says, wait, maybe I'm mistaken. Thunder B said, maybe I'm mistaken. You're correct. It says a retired chief master sergeant. Okay. But is it the guy? Is, is it just one? And then MG eyes opened. Another good follow. Found this article about this guy and look what it says. It says, I am a black man who happens to be the chief master sergeant of the Air Force. I am George Floyd. I am Philando Castile. I am Michael Brown. I am Alton Sterling. I am Tamir Rice. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. So. It just so happens that the fare card used by the J-6 pipe bomber belongs to the chief master sergeant of the Air Force, retired, who still maintains a security clearance and works as a consultant in D.C., who is a leftist who did the whole I am George Floyd thing. Kind of weird. I mean... Kind of weird. Now, uh, Mind Not For Rent found an account on X that seems to be that account, but not sure because it keeps on posting pictures of a white guy. This guy. So, maybe it's a bot account that was created um, or something, but that seems to be a dead end. So, anyway, there is an X account that, that has the same name, but it looks like it's probably not that guy because it's posting these selfies. So, I, th I think it's probably a bot. Um. Just one now, maybe it has nothing to do with him, right? Maybe we don't actually know, okay? We don't know. All we have are suspicions here and speculation. So maybe the Metro card was taken from him. Maybe he it was stolen from him. Maybe he lost it. Maybe somebody was able to create a copy of the master of his Metro card or fair card. Sorry, his fair card. Maybe 
you know, maybe they spoofed it. That's very possible. And then they did all this in trying to point in this guy's direction and it was a false lead, right? Those things are possible. There's alternative explanations for it. But it, I agree with Fool Nelson. It's weird that this Re, Real Daily Wire journalist went so far as to mention this security clearance in this contractor, right? But didn't follow up on who it was in the article. It's kind of weird. Like, pretty easy to just look up who the chief master sergeant of the Air Force was. I think we're getting closer to some uh, J6 pipe bombs news, so, like some kind of break, I think. It'd be pretty cool if we uh, we learned, like if this, if this J6 pipe bomb broke, story broke open this year before the election, and we find out how complicit some of our elected representatives might have been in it. This also makes me think of... Deleted text messages. Let's see. Secret Service maliciously deleted text messages. They say that's false. We didn't maliciously delete them. But there's an investigation into it. Secret Service admits that the agency did delete texts from January 5th and 6th as part of a pre-planned three-month system migration and slams the government watchdog's insinuation that it maliciously erased evidence. I'm just wondering... Were any of the deleted texts from the phones of any of these guys? And if the if the pipe bombs weren't meant If they were meant to go off, well, I don't know. I'll stop short of speculating on that for now. I don't want to think aloud about bombs. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to think aloud about bombs while I'm on air. That seems like a a risky thing to do. Okay. All right, folks. If you enjoyed today's show, check out my links. Follow me on social medias. Hit the thumbs up and uh, share the show. I may I may clip some of the segments today. I may clip the McGonagall segment and the uh, 
um, whatchamacallit, uh, the uh, Tate Brothers segment. I don't know. We'll see. I'll make some clips of the show today. Uh, but yeah, if you guys like the show, watch for those clips and share those clips. My support links are right here um, on my link tree. They're also in the description of the show. If you click on those links, then you go make a purchase at one of those sites. They'll kick a few dollars my way. You get whatever item you ordered, and then they kick a few dollars my way. You know, um, it's great where I'm at. It's great weather for chili, and I plan on making some ch bootleg chili this evening. So if you guys don't know, bootleg chili is absolutely phenomenal. It's that time of year for chili. Uh, this stuff is so, so, so good. I can't, I can't say enough good stuff about it. I really like the medium. Um, and you get a pound of beef, you brown it up, you add this chili, you put it all in a pot, set it to simmer for, you know, just like 20 minutes or so longer if you want. And golly, it is amazing. But all of their products are amazing. I've been using their seasonings on every week on their food. It is sweet. Yeah. Elaine Watkins, their chili is, uh, has a sweetness to it. It has a sweetness to it that I really like. Cause it's not to me, it's not too sweet. And I say that as someone who, um, I avoid a lot of sweet stuff, um, in my regular, in my regular food. Um, like I don't drink sodas. I don't eat candy except for Benson Benson's candy. I do eat that. Uh, but I love their products. I love all their seasonings. I use their seasonings all the time. Great stuff. And um, also Benson Honey Farms. Good morning, Mo. She's in the chat. Cornbread with Benson Honey. I like waffles with Benson's Honey. And I also like putting um, Benson's Honey in my coffee every morning. At least a little bit of it. It is, it is delicious. And I love their soap. Their soap is really high quality stuff. If you like bar soap, then their uh their goat milk soap is is fantastic so um all right i gotta run i got some stuff to do wife wife is out of town for the rest of the week so it's me and the boys just causing mischief and uh you know hanging out should be a fun time wish me wish me luck so y'all have a great day. Thank you for being here. Remember, we're not going to win every battle, but we are going to win this war. And uh, take these white pills I put on the show today and this information, carry it with you. And uh, yeah, y'all have a great day. I'll see you tonight on Devolution Power Hour. We're definitely going to talk about this Obama era memo and how it relates to President Trump's docs case. That's going to be one of our main focuses tonight on DPH. I'll see y'all there.
future Feel the past getting out under you with the shoes at the door 